So our second speaker this afternoon uh, is Graham Harmon, uh, who's Associate Professor of Philosophy at the American University in Cairo, uh, where he's also Associate Vice Provost uh, for Research starting next year. Um, Harmon is the author of four books today. Uh, the first, um, a real intervention, I think, into contemporary philosophy, uh, Tool Being, Hydra and the Metaphysics of Objects uh, in 2002, um, the second, Guerrilla Metaphysics, uh, Phenomenology and the Carpentry of Things in 2005, uh, which extends some of the theories put forward in, in Tool Being. Uh, and then Heidegger Explained from Phenomena to Thing in 2007. Uh, and Prince of Networks, most recently, Bruno Latour and Metaphysics, um, just about to come out, I believe. Just came out. Repress just came out. So it's now available. And then Harmon also has two forthcoming books set to appear in 2010. Uh, the Quadruple ob Object, which will be published simultaneously in, in French and English, uh, and Circus Philosophicus, um, in which I think Harmon's philosophical system is depicted through a series of platonic myths. Um, and Harmon is also the author of an influential blog um, called Object-Oriented Philosophy, where you can already read some details, I think, about your trip to Zagreb. Yes. <laughs> if you're interested. Yes. Um, and also one of the principal figures um, in a philosophical movement of sorts, uh, which is going to be on the spectrum of realism. Um, the other key members of, of which are Quentin Meosu, uh, Ray Brazier, and Ian Hamilton Grant. Um, so the provocative move of what Harmon calls object-oriented philosophy uh, is to revive against the, the heritage of Kant's critical revolution, and I suppose his subject-oriented philosophy, um, a whole range of metaphysical problems uh, that are typically considered closed and, or obsolete, uh, particularly problems concerning um, substance and relation. Uh, so in this sense, I think Harmon's work is proximate to some of Yunnan Bozhevich's uh, concerns insofar as he's reviving uh, some of the topoi of, of early modern philosophy and trying to rethink um, the present relevance. Uh, for Harmon, all entities, whether conscious subjects or snowflakes, whales, flames, stars, and rubies, um, as he puts it in one of the lists, uh, one of the many such lists in, in tool being, um, all entities have to be considered as objects, and the task of philosophy uh, is to break any particular focus on language or consciousness or transcendental conditions um, in order to think the absolutely general structures through which objects are constituted as distinctive forces in the world. Um, the paradox of the core of Harman's work, a paradox that he extrapolates from a really brilliant reading of Heidegger, I think, in tool being, uh, of Heidegger's tool analysis uh, at the beginning of being time, is that any relation between one object and another um, always reduces uh, an object to only a very uh, limited set of traits or a limited profile, but no such relation is ever to, sufficient to exhaust the subterranean reality of any given object. Um, so objects are thus what Harmon calls vacuum-sealed substances uh, that recede from all relation. They withdraw from any all relation with other uh, objects in their, in their being. And the problem is to think how they come into relation with one another at all, uh, which Harmon attempts to do through a theory of vicarious causation, as he calls it. So I think that this uh, paradox um, and the challenge that it poses uh, to materialist philosophy, which will be part of the, the topic of your talk today, which is called Realism Without Materialism. So help me to welcome Thank you. And on the blog, you can also read the story of how I almost wasn't here today. I had a, a lost passport crisis this week that was barely saved in the nick of time. 
I'm here on a temporary emergency passport, so I'm glad this worked out. The paper is uh, 34 pages, but I'm a fast reader, so I'm guessing about 50 minutes. Try not to read, try not to read too fast for the non-native speakers. After years of exile from conversation, realism and materialism are suddenly resurgent in the school once known as continental philosophy. While these two terms are often linked, realism and materialism, sometimes even by a hyphen or a slash, everyone vaguely senses a difference between them. This can be seen from the slightly more fashionable status of the word materialism these days as opposed to realism. It can also be seen from the growing if subtle discomfort with the word realism even in the speculative realist movement itself. Here I refer primarily to Quentin Mayassou and his stated preference for speculative materialism, since Ray Brassier's objections seem directed more at the speculative part of the phrase. Today I want to do two things. First, I will try to drive a wedge between materialism and realism, suggesting that the two currents are not as closely related as might be imagined. In fact, it seems to me that the terms are to some extent in direct opposition. Second, I want to make a case for the realist option over the materialist option. To begin with, I will specify what I think realism ought to mean, since it is often presented in too soft a form. Following this, I will indicate what I take to be the rather different meaning of materialism. In closing, however, I will ask whether realism is itself a sufficiently relevant strategy to guide us in the years to come. There have always been intermittent flirtations with the term materialism in continental philosophy. Realism has been somewhat less lucky. If we consider that this tradition arose to a large extent from phenomenology, then the problem will be obvious. Both Husserl and Heidegger express utter contempt for the old realism versus anti-realism dispute and behave as though they were somehow beyond this distinction. But in fact, they are not beyond it. Husserl is definitely not a realist, and Heidegger is at best only half of one. Until the speculative realist movement was founded in 2006, it is safe to say that only two prominent thinkers in the continental tradition openly proclaimed themselves realists. The first was Bruno Latour in 1999 with a somewhat half-hearted use of the word realism in Pandora's Hope, where he used the term mostly for rhetorical purposes. A more literal use of the term appeared in 2002 in Manuel Vlanda's Intensive Science and Virtual Philosophy, whose opening page suggests realism as the central pillar for the philosophy of our time. Somehow, even Delanda's admirers have managed to avoid, avoid embracing a realist standpoint. In the same year of 2002, realism was also proclaimed in a more obscure book by a then-unknown author, myself, namely, in the book Tool Being. Four years later, the Speculative Realist Collective was founded. But while that particular movement as a cluster of four people may already be dead, I suspect that the brand name speculative realism will survive longer than any of us expected. But the word realism means many things to many people, and for this reason I want to describe what I mean by it personally. One author who is well aware of the multiple senses of the term is Lee Braver. In his excellent book, A Thing of This World, The History of Continental Anti-Realism, Braver lists six pairs of realist and anti-realist theses and numbers them R1 to 6 for realist claims and A1 to 6 for anti-realist claims. To keep things simple, I will cite only the six realist theses from his list. R1, the world is independent of the mind. R2, truth is correspondence. R3, there is only one, not only, there is one true and complete description of how the world is. R4, any statement is necessarily either true or untrue. R5, knowledge is passive with respect to what it knows. R6, the human subject has a fixed character. The first thing we notice about this list is that only one or two of the six theses gives us realism in a strict sense. R2 through R5 offer a specific theory of knowledge that no realist ontology really needs to defend. According to them, our knowledge ought to be a sort of correspondence with the real world. There is one ultimate expression of the truth. Any statement either corresponds or fails to correspond to the truth and the role of knowledge is simply to passively copy what really exists outside the mind. 
Now, it should be clear enough that such notions are unnecessary for realism to be established. It is quite easy to imagine that there is a real world independent of the mind, while also holding that the mind is incapable of modeling that real world with any sort of final or even partial accuracy. In fact, I would argue that this is a much stronger brand of realism than that found in the correspondence theory of truth, since it implies that the real is so very, very real that no sort of human knowledge is commensurate with it. As I see it, Heidegger offers just such a philosophy. Heidegger is often called an anti-realist for the sole reason that he turns Dasein and Sein into a permanent correlation of two terms that would be impossible without one another. This is certainly true, but it does not follow from this correlation that Sein has no independence of Dasein or is exhausted by it. Recall that the major theme of Heidegger's philosophy is the veiling or withdrawal of being, which never entirely reveals itself to historically finite Dasein. Some have said that there is no excess design over and above its series of manifestations to Dasein, and that we can only speak of a sort of overriding principle of these appearances, rather than a Zion that actually exists outside its manifestation. But this false reading threatens to efface any difference between Heidegger on the one hand and his great forerunners Husserl and Hegel on the other. But my topic today is not Heidegger. Suffice it to say that Heidegger's great enemy is any form of presence at hand, and this makes it impossible for him to hold that Zion is nothing more than its series of appearances. Not only is reality not exhausted by its present at hand manifestations in this moment, it also cannot be exhausted by the series of shapes through which it appears. After all, more such shapes are always possible. If the clever subtlety is attempted of saying that Zion is the principle of the series of such shapes, then this principle would either have to be present at hand to consciousness, which Heidegger would never claim, or else this principle would have to be inaccessibly buried beneath those shapes, in which case the realist reading of Heidegger is already conceded, though in a needlessly sterile form. In Heidegger's philosophy, then, we already have one example of a fairly realist philosophy in which the real, or being, exists, but is completely inaccessible to anything like a correspondence model of truth. In short, Lee Braver's list of theses from R2 through R5 are propositions about how knowledge operates, not about reality itself. It is equally easy to see that his thesis R6, that the human subject has a fixed character, is completely disposable for realism. For we can obviously be realists while still thinking that the human subject emerged through contingent evolutionary processes or that the subject is thoroughly shaped by historical and linguistic forces. Indeed, the notion of an unchanging pole of the world called the human subject is obviously a better fit with idealist philosophies than with any realism known to us. This leaves us with the most important of Braver's six theses, R1, the world is independent of the mind. This strikes much closer to what we usually mean by realism. A real world exists outside our minds, not exhausted by its appearance to us. In continental philosophy circles, even this minimal realist claim looks shockingly classical, and those who uphold it often look like daring champions of the minority realist standpoint. But while thesis R1 seems bold in its claims about a real world, in my opinion it still does not strike at the heart of what a realist philosophy needs to be. After all, it defines reality only as independent of the mind. Why this obsession with mind independence in the first place, and especially with autonomy from the human mind? Rocks, trees, and stars have other destinies aside from haunting human knowledge as a dark residue ungraspable by the categories of the human mind. If such entities are real, then they are real not just apart from us, but apart from each other as well. For this reason, Braver's very thorough list needs the supplement of an additional thesis that may turn out to be the most important re realist principle of them all. Following the existing numerical series, let's call it R7. All relations are on the same ontological footing as the human world relation. The reverse doctrine would be A7, the human world relation has philosophical privilege over all others. And it is this thesis, A7, that is really the heart of Kant's Copernican revolution. Only rarely do authors in our midst challenge this thesis. Normally it is built into every avant-garde philosophy that emerges as a sort of unspoken presupposition. This just goes to show how deeply the great Kant has shaped us all and how difficult it remains to escape him, as must happen if either realism or materialism is to have its deserved resurgence. 
But there are at least two schools of contemporary philosophy, more than all others, that challenge Kant's A7, A7 privilege of the human world destiny, human world duality, sorry. The first would be the process philosophy of whiteheads, for whom the relation between human and world is just a special case of a broader class of apprehensions, which includes the relations between wind and trees or cotton and fire, no less than that between Socrates and all of these entities. The human relation to the world is surely more complicated and picturesque than the collision of inanimate stones, but the difference is one of degree rather than of kind. Any entity, when relating to any other, will abstract from it or distort it to some extent, as Whitehead has clearly seen. This is why he can openly proclaim his return to a pre-Kantian era of philosophy. The second school of philosophy that openly flouts Kant's A7 credo is scientific naturalism. Here we have a famously hard-nosed philosophy that views human perception of the world not as a special tear in the fabric of the cosmos, different in kind from chemical reactions and the propagation of waves through water and air, a flaw in the cosmic diamond, but rather as a purely natural phenomenon purely natural phenomenon explainable in terms of more fundamental physical processes. In Whitehead and the Naturalists, then, we have two prominent standpoints embracing the basic R7 principle that places all inanimate, inanimate relations on the same footing. For this reason, it might seem that they are admirable and impeccable in their realism. However, somewhat controversially, I would say that neither Whitehead nor the Naturalists are realist enough. In fact, I want to claim rather bluntly that the only way to have full-blown philosophical realism is to adopt the standpoint that I always defend and which I call object-oriented philosophy. Realism is not a theory of knowledge, but a theory about the autonomy of the real. And yet the real cannot just be autonomous from us, but it must also be autonomous from other entities that are real. The world is not a colossal inarticulate lump that emits cryptic signals while hoping for the grace of human beings to carve it into parts. Instead, the world is made of discrete entities, and they are every bit as mysterious and veiled in comparison with each other as in comparison with us. Realism requires that entities be autonomous from each other. This is why even Whitehead is not enough of a realist for me, since he relationizes the world and forbids entities any autonomy from these relations. Indeed, Whitehead takes great pride in doing this, as does Bruno Latour. That seems to leave us with scientific naturalism, which not only allows all entities to be on the same footing, but also allows them to be something like individual substances irreducible to their relational effects on anything else. But I see at least two problems with the naturalist standpoint that prevent it from upholding the key realist principle of the autonomy of individual things. First, naturalism quite often means reductionism. Certain apparent entities are shown to be nothing more than the effects of other smaller entities, with everything ultimately explained by some sort of privileged microphysical realm, in this way, not only would psychological states be potentially reducible to physical facts, but even the physical realm would lose its structure of autonomous layers. Not only would tables and armies not be real, neither would geological facts, chemical facts, and even facts about protons and neutrons, both of them reducible to the interactions of quarks. Reductionism makes a, for, a poor fit with realism because there is no obvious reason why real things could not be of many different sizes and why they could not have an integral reality over and above their constituent pieces. But there is a second and even more important problem with naturalism. Insofar as it finds things capable of physical explanation, it tends toward the correspondence theory of truth. Entities can be known adequately if we are able to list all of their known qualities, as though an entity were nothing more than a bundle of traits, that most persistent dogma of British empiricism tacitly adopted even by those who otherwise detest this tradition. In other words, naturalism does not recognize that things have a certain autonomy even from their own qualities. The consequences of this point are extraordinary, as we will see in a moment. Now let's put ourselves for the, the moment in the shoes of a mainstream realist, not an object-oriented realist. Such a person will usually say something along the following lines. Empiricists believe that there are only qualities found in experience, and through the force of habit we tend to bundle these qualities together into objects. But this is false. The true situation is that in our mind, in our mind there are certain qualities of an apple or a rose, while outside our mind real objects called apples or roses exist. 
In other words, for these mainstream realists, the hidden real sphere belongs to objects, while the ideal sphere belongs solely to bundles of qualities. In Materialism and Imperial Criticism, Lenin praises Berkeley for his honesty as follows. This is Lenin. The two fundamental lines of philosophical outlook are here depicted by Berkeley with the straightforwardness, clarity, and precision that distinguish the classical philosophers from the inventors of new systems in our day. Materialism is the recognition of objects in themselves or outside the minds. The opposite doctrine, idealism, claims that objects do not exist without the mind. Objects are combinations of sensations. For realism, then, it seems that there is an object outside the mind and definite content inside the mind. This notion can be found well beyond Lenin. Consider Kazimierz Twardowski, the great Polish student of Brentano, whose major work is literally entitled On the Content and Object of Presentations, a little gem of a work that both fascinated and repelled the young Husserl. Twardowski's point is to establish that not everything is imminent in the mind. Rather, there is an object outside the mind and a content inside it. As he puts it, one has to distinguish accordingly between the object at which our idea aims, as it were, and the imminent object or the content of the presentation. This distinction is not always made. This sounds like a fairly simple and straightforward point that any realist like me ought to accept without question. However, the picture is exactly twice as complicated as this, and surprisingly enough, it is none other than Edmund Husserl who gives us the needed complication. As far as I'm aware, Husserl never entered intellectual dialogue with Lenin, but he had plenty to do with Twardowski, his fellow Brentano students. Throughout the 1890s, we can see Husserl struggling with Twardowski's influence. Most famously, Husserl denied that there was an object lying outside the mind in Twardowski's sense. Husserl found this to be an unacceptable sort of doubling. After all, Berlin and the Berlin of which I speak are one and the same for Husserl. As a result of these reflections, Husserl's undeniable idealism begins to increase, growing stronger with each passing decade, with the result that it is finally ruled absurd to entertain the notions of real things that could never be correlates of a conscious intention, intuition. Sorry. All of this is true. But what is usually overlooked is that Husserl does not simply eliminate Twardowski's distinction between object and content. Instead, he sets up this same distinction within the realm of phenomena. For it is absolutely the case that Husserl distinguishes an object such as a tree from the content through which it is presented. That's the whole point of phenomenology, after all. No description would ever be needed if there were no tension between an object and its specific manifestation in any given instance. From whatever angle or distance I view the tree, it presents ever-shifting sensual qualities. Yet it is not the case that I think of it as a different tree every time some tiny fluctuation occurs along the surface. Instead, I remain focused on the single unchanging intentional object, the tree. This tree should not be confused with a real tree, since it will vanish if I fall asleep. And whether Husserl likes it or not, it is entirely dependent on my act of paying attention to it. This becomes clear if we consider an obviously unreal intentional object, such as a green dragon. We always imagine this green dragon with certain specific features, yet those features can vary in thought or hallucination, imagining the dragon from different angles and with different facial expressions, without the intentional object green dragon changing in the least. This proves that an intentional object is not some hidden unity lying outside the phenomenal fields. Rather, human experience is broken up into countless discrete objects in its own right, each of them showing different profiles or adumbrations in different moments. In this way, Husserl quietly demolishes the bundle of qualities theory of the sensory realm. We do not encounter flecks of color, but objects. The supposed floating sensory qualities that we experience, according to the myth of empiricism, are enslaved from the start to the underlying objects to which they belong. The red of an apple, curtain, or blood are different reds, even if the wavelength of light is absolutely identical in all three cases. Sense qualities radiate or emanate from intentional objects, and not the reverse. Thus it happens that we have a new and mesmerizing theme for realism. No one would call Husserl a realist, yet he undeniably feels like one. Far too little has been... Has Far too little attention has been paid to this strange fact by those who prefer to dismiss Husserl for idealism, while hypocritically defending others who are every bit as idealist as he is. 
Scattered through Husserl's often antiseptically dry works are various mailboxes, blackbirds, friends named Hans, and battles of centaurs. Above all else, Husserl is concerned with objects, since intentional acts are never aimed at anything but objects. Husserl is surely the first object-oriented idealist. And insofar as I claim that realism is a philosophy of autonomy, there is a certain perverse streak of realism to Husserl's phenomenology. After all, the tree and apple are autonomous from any specific way in which they might appear. Their surface effects can be varied almost at will without the, log- the object losing identity. In that sense, these intentional objects must be incorporated into any genuine realism, not just annihilated by angry cognitive scientists as being lamentable examples of the manifest image. While they do not have the same sort of autonomy and independent power as real objects, they must still be reckoned with. Thus, it turns out that we do not just have objects outside the mind and content inside the mind. Husserl shows that phenomena themselves are already haunted by an object-content split, but the same split occurs in the real world. As Leibniz puts it in Numbers 12-13 of the Monadology, there must be diversity in that which changes, which produces, so to speak, the specification and variety of simple substances. This diversity must involve a multitude in the unity or in the simple. For since all natural change is produced by degrees, something changes and something remains. As a result, there must be a plurality of properties and relations in the simple substance, although it has no parts. Hence, the real world is no more made up of unified, colorless lumps called objects any more than the sensual world is made up of arbitrary bundlings of sparkling, colorful qualities. The world is polarized first between real and image, and second between unity and quality. Elsewhere, I have often argued that this is the meaning of Heidegger's notorious fourfolds, and will not repeat that explanation today. All that matters for us is this. If realism is the philosophy that squares by autonomy as its watchword, we should note that there are at least four kinds of autonomy. Number one, real objects withdraw behind any of the specific qualities to which they are manifest. Heidegger's hammer is always more than the colors, shapes, and practical functions through which we know it. Number two, real objects are not bundled together from a set of qualities, but have a certain unity and autonomy from these qualities, as Leibniz's remarks indicated. Number three, intentional objects are always autonomous from any of the accidental features to which they become visible. Husserl's analysis of intentional objects shows this clearly enough. And number four, finally, intentional objects not only have transient accidental qualities in their surface, but also have real essential features that must be patiently articulated, and which for Husserl can only be known in categorical, categorical, not sensual intuition. Uh, This is called the Eidos for Husserl. In short, it is rather impoverished to speak of realism if a philosophy merely insists that something real might exist or does exist outside the human mind. Instead, realism needs to respect at least four different types of autonomy. The world is made up of objects, meaning individual entities. And these objects are autonomous from their relations, accidents, qualities, and moments. We might add that if they are real objects, then they must also be autonomous from their component pieces, so that objects could be emergent realities over and above those pieces. Realism must be object-oriented, or it is merely a half-hearted realism. Henceforth, any philosophy that denies any of these forms of autonomy should also be denied in the name of realism. My claim is that realism requires a cosmos made up of objects. But this might be opposed in one of two different ways. The first would subvert objects by saying that they are merely epiphenomenal. They are fully unreal, or at least less real than some deeper layer by which they are generated. The other and opposite strategy would assert that the object is an empty je ne sais quoi, a useless hypothesis compared with a more evident and accessible zone of evidence. If the first could be called an undermining of objects, the second might be called an overmining of them. Though this neologism overmining may sound awkward at first, it becomes more palatable with use, and I must warn everyone that it should be used frequently in what follows. For the next few minutes, I will give some examples of both of these strategies. But what is most remarkable about materialism is that materialism, it turns out, uses both strategies at the same time. In this sense, materialism is even the greatest enemy of the object-oriented position I have just sketched. Let's consider several examples of how objects might be undermined by something deeper. 
something less formed. The most obvious case would be extreme monism. For such philosophies, all is basically one. Individual entities are either mere refuse on the surface of being, as for Parmenides, or at best they are transient excesses destined for eventual annihilation by justice dissolved in the bosom of a global boundless featureless aperon, as for Anaximander. More recent examples can be found in French philosophy. For Emmanuel Levinas in De l'existence à l'existence, insomnia reveals a global unarticulated ilia, or being without beings. Levinas changes the Heideggerian terminology, he says, only for reasons of euphony. Same terms otherwise. Only human consciousness is able to carve the world into pieces in a process that Levinas calls hypostasis. When considered apart from human access, the world itself is a monolithic lump. It makes no difference when people say, as they always seem to do, that neither the unified Iliad nor the consciousness of specific entities can be considered in isolation, so that the Iliad is always broken into pieces. For even then, the chief point remains. The Iliad has pieces only for humans. It is not articulated in its own right, with different pieces of the Iliad struggling against one another whether humans know it or not. Hence, the function of the real in this philosophy is nothing more than to undercut the current human encounter with individual entities. A second example comes from Jean de Blancy in Corpus. Nancy finds himself in a double bind while attempting to avoid a metaphysics of presence. For on the one hand, he does not want to reduce the world to its accessibility to us. He senses the need for a layer of the universe that withdraws from direct presence and from which change and turmoil can arise. Yet at the same time, he does not want this cryptic layer to be made of fully articulated entities, since he thinks this would lead to a bad form of Platonism. The houses and fires to which we have access would be reduced to mere secondary copies of the true forms of house and fire in some more perfect realm. His solution amounts roughly to the familiar appeal to a shapeless matter lying beneath the palpable forms of the world. Nancy calls it whatever. That's a technical term for him, whatever. And he holds that it takes on a particular shape only by way of relationality. In its own right, the world is simply whatever, with no specific articulation. No matter what happens on the top floor of the world, the bottom floor is purely monistic, even if the caveat is added that the category of the one belongs only to human awareness, and hence the whatever cannot strictly be called one. Another example of this tacit monism can be found in a recent idea of my own friend and inspiration, Bruno Latour. For the most part, Latour belongs among the overminers of objects, since he thinks entities are real only by virtue of their relations. But in scattered recent footnotes and a few short pieces of main text, Latour has recently referred to a deeper plasma that lies beneath all articulated beings. The motive for his introducing this plasma is clear enough. Latour seems to be increasingly aware that if things are defined entirely in terms of their relational effects on other entities, and this principle is the very pillar of Latour's ontology, then it is hard to see why change should ever occur. In Reassembling the Social, 2005, Latour takes up the theme with poetic force, asking why large corporations should suddenly crumble overnight, why the Soviet empire should vanish almost without warning, why the most mediocre academic musicians should suddenly compose a masterpiece. His answer is that there must be a deeper reservoir behind things, or an unformatted plasma. He even estimates the size of it. If all networks of entities are the size of the London underground system, then Latour says the plasma is equal in size to the rest of London. A shocking statement from Bruno Latour, Prince of Networks, best known for his doctrine that an actor is nothing more than whatever it modifies, transforms, perturbs, or creates. Here again, an accessible world of discrete articulated entities is doubled by a shadowy background that Latour specifically calls unformatted. Actors still take on definite form or format only through their relations. There are two problems with all such theories. The first is that it remains unclear how a monolithic plasma, whatever, ilia, or being, should be able to blossom into a landscape of highly specific individual appearances. If the underworld is truly unformatted, then I cannot see why it should suddenly be broken into parts by a human being, who really ought to be just as much melted into the unformatted plasma as everything else. And even if humans were given arbitrary special rights to violate this rule, 
then why even for humans should formatted entities emerge in one way rather than another? Instead of reading these words in Zagreb, I might well be in Venice or a salt mine or suddenly transform into an insect-like creature made of rubber and glass. And any of these incidents would bear just as likely a relationship to the unformatted plasma as anything else. Indeed, the doctrine of an all-powerful underlying plasma suggests that such wild transformations ought to happen even more frequently than they do. It's starting to sound like Mayasu's contrary theory, isn't it? Uh, the second problem with these theories is that they are depressingly two-layered, though the world in itself, as we know it, is actually multi-layered. For on the one side, in these philosophies, we have a rumbling, or unformatted glob, free of all articulation, and on the other side, we have specifically shaped individual entities. The only truly important gap for such philosophies is the one that lies between these two layers. Gaps within the articulated realm are treated as less important and as supposedly less problematic. But is it not philosophically interesting that hydrogen and oxygen should combine to make water, that a few thousand soldiers combine into a legion, or that two boxers, a promoter, and a crowd make a heavyweight title bout? It is the same depressing duality that one finds in some contemporary philosophers of mind. And I'm speaking here of the ones who do think that consciousness is irreducible, even though they think that all physical entities are reducible to microparticles. David Chalmers and Galen Strawson come to mind. Remember these two problems, for they are altered slightly in a subtler variation on this position that we will now consider. That variant standpoint would be as follows. There is not a simple opposition between a formless real and a fully articulated accessible realm. Rather, the real is somewhat articulated, but not, not a completely exhaustive form. The pre-Socratic version of this theory would come from Anaxagoras, from whom all things contain the seeds of all others, the homoeomerei. In the beginning, there was not just a lump, but a lump injected with the forms of all things, none of them dominant enough to appear openly. A tree would also contain the forms of rocks and fire, but only in very weak form compared to the treeness present in it. My fellow panelist, Miran Bolshevich, has pointed to a similar doctrine in the case of Diderot. An even earlier modern version can be found in Giordano Bruno, who speaks of a global matter that contains all forms in advance, the forms merely needing to be contracted in order to take on specific shape. Contraction, an idea drawn from Bruno's inspiration, Nicholas Cosanus. Within today's speculative realist movement, we also have the philosophical standpoint of Ian Hamilton Grant, who defends a Bruno-esque underworld of matter that generates individual flowers and horses through meeting up with obstructions, or as he calls them, re uh, retardations. We find a similar attitude in the standpoint of Gilbert Simondon with his model of pre-individuality or in Manuel de Landa's topological version of the virtual, which he calls with a single stroke both heterogeneous and continuous. We might also find it in a Bergsonian model that treats individual entities as encrustations of a deeper and livelier flux. For similar reasons, we would find it in any philosophy that takes difference as primary, so that it would be false to speak of individual entities which would involve lapsing into the belief in the identity of individual things. This philosophy, which avoids both monism and individual substances via the middle ground of pre-individuality, strikes me as a case of have your cake and eat it too. It does have excellent motives, and that is why I tend to like these positions better than the strictly monistic kinds. On the one hand, they recognize that entities cannot be fully determinate or fully accessible, because then it would be too hard to explain change of any sort or to avoid reducing things to their accessible presence to us. And on the other hand, it recognizes that if one starts with monism, there is no reason why the one should ever break into individual parts for any reason at all. But in this way, it ends up with the middle ground of a real that is heterogeneous yet continuous, the Landa's phrase, which is something like saying a shape that is round yet square. We cannot solve the problem by fiat, evading the problem of one and many by simply positing a magical layer of the world where everything is both one and many at the same time. Notice that this position shares one of the flaws of monism while adding a new one. First, we still have the problem of a two-layered universe. Instead of a lump on one side and articulated entities on the other, we have a heterogeneous yet continuous plane on one side and articulated actual entities on the other. Now as before, 
No room is left for much structure within the realm of articulated actual entities. The relation between the pre-individual and stars is allowed to be interesting, but the relation between stars and galaxies less so. Also missing from this theory is any account of horizontal interactions between things. How does fire affect cotton, or how do antibiotics affect bacteria? The scene of philosophy is shifted away from such individual entities and toward a single unique gap between individual and pre-individual. In a manner reminiscent of Neoplatonism, the causal problem becomes entirely vertical in nature. I have heard protests that the actual can also affect the virtual in reverse, but this is not the point. The point is whether or not actual can affect actual. Scratch the surface of such philosophies, and the answer too often seems to be no. Second, the other problem of monism has obviously vanished. Namely, how can a one be shattered into many pieces? For there is no longer a one, but rather something that is supposed to be heterogeneous as well as continuous. Fair enough. But insofar as heterogeneity has been recognized, this means there are multiple realities deeper than any of their actualizations. And insofar as entities are deeper than any actualization, this raises the question of how they can, they can interact at all, given that they are deeper than any of their mutual contact. This problem is supposed to be solved by saying heterogeneous and continuous. They're all together already anyway, so of course they can interact. But notice that even if there is no longer a purely monistic layer of the cosmos, the duel between one and many has simply been moved into the interior of all the pre-individuals. For if deeper than a stone there is something like a pre-stone, and this pre-stone is on the one hand individuated, and on the other hand immersed in a continuity with the rest of the pre-individual realm, then we have the same old duel between one and many. It's simply implanted in the heart of every pre-individual. So much then for the undermining philosophies. What all share in common is the inability to explain why many should exist if the root of all is one, their relatively impoverished vision of a two-layered world rather than a many-layered cosmos, and their tendency to evade the problem of horizontal causation between individuals as opposed to vertical causation between depth and surface. The only remaining alternative is to accept the important philosophical role of individual entities, which cannot be decomposed into anything pre-individual without starting on the slippery slope to monism, which we have seen to be untenable. Object-oriented philosophy cannot be undermined with any success. But we must still consider the overmining strategy, the opposite of undermining. The basic idea behind all the overmining strategies is not that the object is a surface production of deeper forces, but that the notion of objects is a useless fiction altogether, and I know not what, supposedly hiding behind the surface of the world. One obvious example can be found in outright idealism. What is given is all that there is, S. S. Bikipi. Nothing is hiding behind the surface of the world. A rose is merely a bundle of qualities that are habitually placed together to form the idea of a rose. There is no hidden mystical unit called rose, but merely a human access to rose qualities. A softer version of this idealism can be found in what Neyasu calls correlationism, which holds a more skeptical view as to what may or may not lie outside the minds. But here, too, correlationism sees no reason to posit objects lying behind whatever is directly accessible to us. Another example of an overmining standpoint could be called not correlationism, but simply relationism. Whitehead and Latour would be two examples of this position, in which an object is nothing more than its effects on or relations with other objects. In any case, the idea of the object as a unified enduring kernel hiding behind its effects is treated as superfluous. Just like the undermining of objects, overmining also has two problems, though obviously they are different ones. We've already seen the first problem, the same one that motivates so many of the undermining philosophies. Namely, if things are completely determinate and actualized, whether through their relations, qualities, or givenness to a human observer, it is hard to see why anything would ever change. That is to say, if all things are nothing more than what they already are, which is precisely what overmining says, then what they already are should be enough. There should be no residual reservoir of force anywhere in the world that would cause instability in the current state of things. In this way, overmining does an injustice to the future of objects. But second, it also does an injustice to their present. For in the present, an object is not merely encountered by one observer or one other object, but by many. The nature of this encounter is slightly different for each of the encountering entities. 
Even if someone stands directly next to me, their view of a tree will be different from my own. And even if our perceptions were qualitatively identical, the different moods, ages, and life histories of my friend and I will affect how we see it. Thus, the object is not identical with how it is encountered by any other object, by the sum total of such encounters, or even by the sum of all possible encounters. In the case of undermining, I offered some precursors from pre-Socratic thoughts. Parmenides and Anaximander heralded the monolithic ontology of the world monk, while Anaxagoras was a forerunner of pre-individuals contained but not fully expressed in the one. Now I was at first inclined to say that there are no pre-Socratic forerunners for the overmining positions. They all seem so very modern, idealism, relationism, and bundle of qualities, empiricism. But upon reflection, I realized that there is plenty of overmining in pre-Socratic thought. Consider the following. If we were forced to divide all pre-Socratic thinkers into exactly two groups, a good method of division would be to distinguish between those who find reality in physical elements, whether water, air, all four elements, or atoms, and those who find it in something deeper than all such elements, whether it be aperon, being, or flux. Let's focus now on those who uphold the physical elements. If a pre-Socratic philosopher says all is water or everything is made of air, this might look at first like an undermining position. After all, the claim seems to be that this tree, this house, this dog are really just special configurations of water, air, earth, fire, or all four in combination, or of atoms. There is something deeper than all the mid-sized everyday objects we encounter, and this deeper thing is the truly fundamental element. But what happens when we finally reach this deepest element, water, air, or atoms? What do we find? What we find is an element discernible through certain evident properties, whether it be the, the moistness of the water, the expansive contractive volatility of air, or the size, shape, and spatiotemporal location of atoms. But these are all properties that Heidegger would justifiably call present at hand. For all these definitions of entities offer a certain set of palpable properties belonging to the ultimate elements, without addressing the being of these things, which is what withdraws behind all such discernible qualities. In this sense, theories of physical elements are actually overmining doctrines. And in a sense, all that Heidegger ever does is debunk all overmining doctrines. Any attempt to define a thing in terms of its accessible discursive properties cuts things off at the knees or overlooks their permanently veiled inscrutability. By contrast, Heidegger has nothing to say against undermining doctrines, and at times he lapses into them, as in those moments when he holds that being itself is one, not yet sliced up into beings. And there are moments like that. An object-oriented philosophy needs to provide the missing half of Heidegger's critique, criticizing not just the ontotheology of the surface, but also the monotheology of the depths. And my use of the word theology here is no joke. Notice how often undermining turns into pantheism, as in Giordano Bruno's works. In fact, the two types of pre-Socratic philosophy point to two different kinds of materialism, one of them rare and the other common. The rare sort is usually found only among certain offbeat metaphysical philosophers. It holds that matter is a churning primeval unity, a ground from which individual objects emerge and into which they later dissolve. The more common sort of materialism says that the mid-sized physical objects we see are not fundamental, but are built of more fundamental particles. Though in the end, these particles are not autonomous from their very specific and very accessible set of qualities. What people usually mean by the word materialism is this more common latter kinds, the smaller physical entities to which larger entities are reducible. Let's use the name materialism for this more common theory, and we will return to the other kind of materialism shortly. For the most part, I have treated undermining and overmining as opposite strategies, and in a sense they certainly are. But one feature they share in common is that both are reductive methods, whether reducing objects downward to something deeper, or reducing them upward to their accessibility or their tangible effects. But what is even more interesting is the way in which these two methods are parasitical off one another, so that the adoption of one theory requires simultaneous adoption of the other as a supplement. After all, anyone who believes in a rumbling monolithic ground must also concede that there seem to be specific entities. Hence, these are granted as a kind of supplemental illusion or surface effect. 
Conversely, anyone believing that things are nothing more than in their appearances or effects will usually, if not always, supplement these effects with some invisible and unknowable remainder from which the actual things somehow vaguely emerge. What both procedures do is skip the intermediate zone, where autonomous objects are found. Both construct a two-layered reality where jumps are made from one layer to the other, differing only in which layer they think is of primary interest for philosophy. Neither of them grant much autonomous power of action or reality to individual entities. In ancient Greece, this needle was finally threaded not by any of the pre-Socratics, but by Aristotle. And in fact, it is Aristotle's influence that has usually been responsible for the occasional dignity of individual things in philosophy, despite his regrettable tendency to overprivilege objects that exist in nature, while neglecting the reality of fantastic assemblages such as armies, street gangs, institutions, and machines. What I think we need in philosophy these days is a weirder version of Aristotle. But returning to the duality of overmining and undermining, what makes materialism so interesting is that it does not just supplement one of these procedures with the other, but combines both of them simultaneously. We saw this in the case of the various pre-Socratic elements. For on the one hand, physical elements are used to reduce mid-sized physical objects to tinier microparticles, and on the other hand, that to which these objects reduce is some final element that is purely present at hand in Heidegger's sense, identical to the manifest properties through which it can be known. Instead of steering like Odysseus between Scylla and Charybdis, materialism takes great pride in crashing into both. Materialism is the anti-object-oriented philosophy par excellence, and it will come as no surprise that I oppose it for this reason. But oppose it in the name of what? The title of this paper is Realism Without Materialism, and this seems to indicate that realism is the positive term. However, the term realism usually means nothing more than Lee Braver's R1 thesis, belief in a world outside the mind. And now that we have split philosophies into object-oriented theories and those that undermine or overmine objects, the term realism is no longer of any help, since it can apply at various times to philosophies found in all three categories. This is obvious enough for object-oriented thoughts, whose objects exist outside the mind and outside much else as well. It is equally obvious for the undermining philosophies, which imagine some pre-thematic real deeper than whatever, whatever humans are able to access. But finally, it is even true for some of the overmining philosophies, Consider whiteheads, who use entities solely in terms of their relations, while still shifting philosophy to a real world where the human being is just one entity among many others. And finally, realism might well refer even to the combined undermining-overmining position of its materialism, as in Thales or in Anaximenes. A word that can refer equally well to such vastly different positions is perhaps best avoided. And in fact, it is quite likely that this, today, is the last time I will ever use the word realism in the title of a lecture unless I am speaking purely historically about someone else's positions. In tactical terms, I believe that realism was certainly the right chord to play in continental philosophy during the decade now ending. This can be seen not only in speculative realism, but also in Delanda, whose great rhetorical force comes partly from his simple willingness to come right out and say, I'm a realist. In the concluding pages of this lecture, I will continue to use realism as a term for my own position, midway between the two reductive extremes that materialism embodies at the same time but I will do this somewhat half-heartedly. Though I have made great efforts to establish a true meaning of realism as meaning object-oriented, I now wonder why I have been fighting so hard to say the words. Realism really is too broad a term, not as specific as we need it to be to fight the new battles that will soon be upon us. However, realism without materialism is still a reasonably good slogan, since if we subtract materialism's undermining and overmining components from the equation, we end up with the object-oriented position that I think we need. Now my conclusion. There are some who think that philosophy is a matter of making correct arguments. According to this view, the goal of philosophy is to make true statements about features of our world that are simply more general than those made by any of the specific sciences. The corollary would follow that problems in philosophy occur when we make incorrect statements about the way the world is. An entire ethos of human behavior follows from this principle. 
Philosophy is a dispute over correct and incorrect arguments. Style and rhetoric are mere ornaments that should be stripped away whenever possible to focus solely on the truth. Specialization is a good way to focus expertly on individual slices of subject matter so to attain more and more statements about them. Truths will tend to be generated step by step and collectively rather than dramatically by way of daring vision and individual risk. Above all, truth will be opposed to originality as though true meant true propositional content and original meant previously unheard of propositional content. The proper means of philosophical interchange will be critique, since the greatest danger for all of us will be slipping into gullibly incorrect statements about the world. A fierce mutual criticism is needed so that we all keep each other honest, preventing each other from getting away with murder via non-sequiturs and false deductions. Insofar as truth is defined as a special domain of correct propositions set apart from everyday life, with its patent untruths of ideology, bias, superstition, religion, rhetoric, and faulty deduction, Human interchanges are permitted to take place in an aggressive atmosphere of intellectual machismo, since it's nothing personal after all, but merely a critical search for true statements about the world. Any alternative to arguments as a philosophical method will be dismissed as self-indulgent poetry. As I see it, this model of philosophy is as false as the modes of human behavior deriving from it are unpleasant and fruitless. In the first place, how big a problem is it when we make false statements? False deductions in mathematics are catastrophic, and the same is often true of false experimental data in the natural sciences. But even in these domains, and especially in the sciences, it is well known that the dominant standpoints in the field are usually already falsified by facts that they cannot quite explain. The incompatibility of relativity and quantum theory is merely the most famous of the herd of elephants in the living room. We do not abandon these two theories for that reason, but suspect that both must eventually be absorbed into some deeper generalization. This seems to be even more true in philosophy. Whitehead notes that any statement about the world, if subjected to the logician's alternative of true or false, must inevitably be called false. For any statement is an abstraction of sorts, and for this reason, falsity is inevitable and should not be our greatest fear. In more practical terms, how often do we hear people making statements that are outright false? Though it may happen from time to time, the most obvious falsities are rejected so easily by the greatest number of observers that they actually pose little threats. The real problem, it seems to me, as it does to Whitehead, comes from shallow or trivial truths. The problem, in other words, is not that we make false statements, but that we often miss the point. That is to say, the usual problem in philosophy is that we are entranced by some minor side issue or false alternative rather than focusing on the point of most central importance in any given topic. As I have said elsewhere, if we find 17 mistakes in Kant's critique of pure reason and 19 mistakes in some dull, mediocre journal article, then we have somehow lost all sense of the true relative magnitudes of Kant in the journal article. Error does not mean speaking faulty propositional content. It means failing to keep one's eyes on the true stakes in any situation. And when we speak of wisdom in humans, we do not mean the ability to avoid mistakes, but rather the ability to distinguish between the important and the unimportant on any occasion. For instance, when philosophers look at the past and present of their discipline, they have the obligation to make distinctions and place thinkers into categories. And this is where we are all most likely to miss the point. An absurd exa example would be as follows. We could divide all past philosophies into those which hold that water is the first principle of everything and those which disagree. The entire history of philosophy would be divided into the Thales school, containing just one member, and the anti-Thales school, containing thousands of members jealously opposed to the greatness of Thales himself, offering mere contrarian, pettifogging alternatives to the deeper truth of water. I'm going to take a drink at that point. Uh, this history of philosophy could be arbitrarily regarded as correct by any hydrophiliac, but it obviously misses the point. What basis is there for suggesting that water is such a fundamental theme in philosophy? Why waste energy describing the errors of the vast anti-water school of metaphysics? 
Other classifications of, system, of systems, though, are far more serious, such as Francis Bacon's Four Idols or Kant's influential distinction between rationalism and, and empiricism as two fundamental types of philosophy. These are debatable distinctions, though rather than critiquing them, like rhesus monkeys screeching hoarsely and smashing China, we should try to show why they are not as fundamental as they may have seemed to their inventors. For my own part, I find the distinction between rich, rigorous logical argument and self-indulgent poetry to be shallow, as well as the supposedly fundamental rift between human and world that the Torah masks so effectively and we have never been modern. But whether or not you agree with me in these cases, this is the nature of intellectual progress, improving our sense of what the fundamental rifts in the cosmos really are. Progress does not consist in poking holes in the falsity of discursive propositions made by others. Perhaps it will be clear why I have spent several pages on this theme. Today I have been talking about the distinction between realism and anti-realism, as well as that between realism and materialism. And the question we must ask is how important these distinctions really are. And as the year 2009 goes by, I am no longer entirely convinced that realism and materialism are more than useful tactical gestures for a time when anti-realist and anti-materialist presuppositions still dominate continental philosophy, namely correlationist philosophies that care only about the human world interplay while paying little heed to a real or material universe lying outside this correlate. Just as the job of military strategists is to imagine the next war rather than fighting the last one, we may need to reconfigure our classifications under the assumption, which I hold to be true, that correlationism is already beginning to crumble in continental thought. In the preceding pages, I have made a claim about what the point is in philosophy. That point, in my view, is the dignity and autonomy of individual entities. These objects come in two kinds. Real objects that exist quite apart from being touched or detected by anything else, and intentional or essential objects that exist only insofar as they are encountered by another object. The initial motivation for calling this the point in philosophy is that it allows us to cast a very wide net in reality, taking into account all possible entities without making a hasty ideological decision about which ones do and do not deserve to be called real, which ones do and do not deserve to be eliminated. This would resemble the model of phenomenology, except that it also contains real objects that withdraw from all phenomenal access, which Husserl never allows. It would resemble the method of Latour, except that it does not claim that a thing is no more than its effects on other things. Of course, someone might deny that the category of object is of any compelling philosophical depth. It might be said that this is a folk ontology drawn from an everyday experience of the manifest image. In order to oppose this criticism, I have grouped all challenges into objects into two wide categories, the undermining that appeals to a deeper realm than objects, and the overmining that appeals to a higher and more accessible court and claims that objects are just fictional substrata and ultimately just superstitions. There is also a third opponent to materialism, which I have claimed as both things at once. The problem with these strategies, I have said, is that the undermining philosophies cannot explain why the world should ever be broken into parts, the overmining strategies cannot say why the world would ever change, and materialist strategies unjustly undermine emergent levels of the world and also overmine objects by turning the final material elements of the world into sets of present and qualities. Now here is where I think the point lies. If the world is filled with objects, real objects by definition withdraw from one another or fail to make contact with another's full reality. But remember that these objects are unified objects. It is not as if we can make contact with 70% of an object's properties and not with the other 30%. For now it is, it is an all or nothing affair, and the answer seems to be nothing. I will never make contact with the subterranean reality of a tree or fire, and neither will inanimate entities. There is a real problem in knowing how one thing makes contact with another at all. This, I think, is now the point in metaphysics, much more than whether or not there is some real or material residue lying outside a human mind. The point, that is to say, is how objects lying outside each other, whether human or non-human, could also come to be inside each other in such a way as to affect one another. Lacking this, we would have a totally fragmented set of multiverses in which nothing is even remotely in contact with anything else. This is the problem of objects and relations, or stated differently, how objects are both autonomous and non-autonomous from each other. 
This cannot be posited by fiat, as in the phrase heterogeneous yet continuous, but must be explained. There are two possible extremist solutions to this predicament. In fact, both of them have already been tried, and one of them is still dominant today. One extreme solution is to say that there are objects but no relations. The other is to say that there are relations but no objects. The first is the metaphysics of occasionalism, while the second is the metaphysics of empiricism, and effectively also the metaphysics of Kant. Instead of Kant suggests the distinction between rationalism and empiricism, which is a purely epistemological distinction as to how things are known, we might consider one between occasionalism and empiricism. Kant is by no means neutral here, but falls squarely on the empiricist side. Allow me to clarify further. For occasionalism, which has Islamic roots in Iraq, far predating 17th century France, no two created entities can make direct contact. The world is filled with objects or substances, but none is able to touch another. Things might seem to make contact, but in fact, this is merely the occasion for God to intervene directly and affect them both. No fire burns cotton, but God burns cotton. No hair falls from your head without God's direct intervention. Except insofar as God intervenes, except insofar as God intervenes, we have a world with objects but no relations. This philosophy was once mainstream, and it can be found in some form in all of the 17th century continental giants as well as Barclay. But it is now the subject of widespread mockery, and I would bet large sums that not one person in this room really believes it. It has been reduced to a quirky historical curio thrown to undergraduates to mock and pick apart, just as rubber mice are thrown to kittens for their torture and amusements. But the other extreme solution to this problem is not only immune from mockery these days, since it is actually the dominant philosophy of our time, and by our time I mean the past 230 years. This solution claims that there need not be objects, only relations. The agnosticism of Hume about the outside world and the only slightly stronger concession of Kant to ineffable things in themselves do not conceal the fact that autonomous objects disappear from both of these philosophies. We are left with a world in which relation does occur, though objects effectively do not. Hume never doubts that things are linked through habits and customary conjunction. He merely doubts that they have autonomous, autonomous reality and power outside such conjunctions. Kant never doubts that things are linked through the categories. He merely says that we know nothing about them outside these categories. No one mocks these positions today, unlike occasionalism. You can still conduct an entire career in the early 21st century while claiming that Hume or Kant are literally correct without being ridiculed, whereas anyone straightforwardly defending Alashari or Malabranche will be laughed out of the room. But this Humean-Kantian position, which I will jointly term empiricism for lack of a better name, is no more than an upside-down occasionalism. Relations are granted, but autonomous objects are not, whereas the reverse is true of the widely scorned occasionalism. Now, any pair of inverted theories will always have a common assumption. And in the case of occasionalism and empiricism, that assumption is that one special pampered entity is the sole site of all relations in the cosmos. In the case of occasionalism, God is the place where everything relates. In the case of empiricism, human experience is that place. Mainstream intellectuals today will be quick to assert that only gullible theology can establish Almighty God as the source of all relations, whereas genuine philosophical rigor tells us that we have no access to anything but human experience, and that therefore this is a more compelling solution than the theological option. But not all relations are human-world relations. Our survey of monism and the pre-individual showed that there are individual entities in the world and that the relation between these is on the same ontological footing as any human-world relation. Hence, making human experience the homeland of all relations is every bit as outlandish as importing a theological concept of God into a philosophical sphere where the force of faith no longer suffices as proof. It is no exaggeration to say that human experience has become the almighty God of mainstream philosophy in our time. The point, I would say, is the false monopolization of all relations by a single pampered entity or type of entity that has granted the miraculous power to relate where nothing else can do so. This raises the question of whether realism or materialism have the right stuff to break this monopoly. In the case of realism, as usually understood, the answer is obviously no. As we have seen, numerous forms of realism do not address the need for what I call R7 realism, 
in which the relations between all objects are placed on exactly the same footing. In all the monistic lumps and the theories of pre-individual heterogeneous continuity, a monopoly on relations is still granted to humans. The mere concession that there might be some unknown residue lying beyond human experience may indeed be realism, but it is not the badly needed R7 philosophy. A second question, then, does materialism break the human monopoly on relations? The answer for most forms of relationism is yes. Forms of materialism, sorry, is yes. Scientific materialism, for instance, obviously has no difficulty speaking about the gravitational effects of stars on comets or the slow grinding of continental drift millions of years before human life began. Materialism is usually an R7 realism, just as Whitehead's philosophy is also an R7 realism. Human observers need not be on the scene to grant reality to anything that happens. Nonetheless, this sort of R7 philosophy does not come to grips with the problems of relation in all its depth. If occasionalism says there are objects but no relations, and empiricism begins with relations but with no sign of objects, R7, meaning both scientific materialists and Whitehead, simply state by fiat that there are objects and they can easily come into relation. But this merely purchases object-object relations or interobjectivity at the cost of a major backslide from the occasionalist empiricist insight that it is hard to have both autonomous objects and relational interactions. We must stay true to this insight while refusing to cave into the monopoly on relations wrongly granted to the divine god or the human gods. To this end, realism without materialism still might not be an adequate phrase. We still might need a new one. theological school called the Asharites. Um, it was a, a somewhat extremist school opposed to the rationalists, and they said, there's a passage in the Quran talking about the Battle of Badr, where it is said after the battle, it was a great victory for the Muslims, uh, you, th- you think you threw this stone yourself, but truly it is Allah who threw the stone. And they took an extremist interpretation of this and took it to mean that it's Allah who does everything you do. And so they were, they were quickly led into the position that uh, Allah is responsible for everything that you do, and therefore the question arises, why would I be sent to hell if my evil actions, my murders, and my sins are committed by Allah himself? And they said, it's, it's not for us to ask. This was opposed by the rationalist tradition, uh, the Matazilites, who later, they were the inspiration later for um, Avicenna and, and Farabi and, and uh, Ibn Rushd. But you, you've always had this occasionalist component in Islamic philosophy. Uh, Ghazali sometimes seems to, to uphold this as well, where they believe that uh, God is doing everything directly. And it takes a surprisingly long time to come into Christian Europe. Um, by some measures, Descartes may be the first one to say anything like this, that God is needed for interactions. There's uh, uh, Nicolas Dufour in medieval times who's often called the medieval Hume, but you wouldn't quite call him an occasionalist. In fact, I've talked to medieval philosophy specialists, and they've all told me they can't really think of a Christian occasionalist prior to the 17th century. Uh, so it's really an Islamic doctrine for the first seven or 800 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hope not because I'm too fast. Well, well, part, maybe partly, <laughs> but um, also just the, uh, I mean, the number of things you managed to pack in. And, um, so I wish we had hours to discuss this. And um, so I have a lot of different kinds of questions. But I'll maybe mention a couple and see if any of them grab you. I won't address the issues around relation that we've already discussed on other um, occasions. Mm-hmm. But first, I'm, uh, I'm struck by um, the term autonomous for 
involve kind of relation in itself? How do you relate to yourself? Is it, is it um, you have a, you know, are you free, for example, in the way that you self-legislate or self-govern? So is there, an, if you want to emphasize the term autonomy in relation to an object, is there a kind of self-relation that goes into the very notion of a kind of object as such? Or, or for example, you talk about how an object hides behind its apparent relations and withdraws. Hiding also as a verb implies a kind of relation of hiding from. So whether these terms that try to establish your non-relational core, whether they themselves rely on a kind of relational dynamic description. Second <clears throat> is whether, and I'm sure you can ask this very often, but whether you would accept the description of what some of what you're doing as a way of trying to turn the, the ontological that into an ontological what. That, that if what Heidegger says or the Levinas that adapts this from Heidegger and the Saab that adapts this from Heidegger are saying, the ontology essentially addresses the question of that there are, that there is something, and it neglects entirely the question of what it is. So that there is something is something that can never be exhausted by any kind of description of its uh, manifest qualities and so on. Um, and the simple thatness is what has to be thought. Um, and the thatness as such, and this is very clear in itself, for example, who, is, who uh, I think you would appreciate the sort of post-Husserlian finesse or field where objects, you know, the, the empirical intensity and reality, the objects you encounter on the road and so on. Nevertheless, quite comfortable in saying that the that of something is utterly opaque and, and in, you know, it has no fissure, it's not differentiated, it's just this massive lump mm -hmm. of the ensoir. And that what you're trying to do is, in a way, turn that that into a what that you could then describe that would have a kind of essence or a quality to it. And so my question then is, well, what, what of course, what is that what? And how, and, and that how, what resources do you have for describing it? Um, in particular, if you get rid of, this is the final question, of the obvious resource that everybody else uses, which is the, the privilege of knowledge, or the, the relation of knowledge that you're keen to flatten into all, all, of, all of the kinds of relations. And, and here's my question, well, how, how is that when you do this apart from, in a way, pretending to do so? That if, if you say, for example, the relation that you have to the object of knowledge, the relation to a tree, is the same kind of relation that the tree has with the water that it takes in,
see if I can say a little bit about each one. The first one was about autonomy. And no, I don't think the, the object is a privileged relation to its own self. And etymologically, I know that's what it means, so maybe I should pick a different word besides autonomy to avoid that confusion. But I don't, I don't think the relation to self has privilege over the relation to anything else. You're going to still have this opacity when confronting yourself. The psychoanalysis notes, we're transparent to ourselves, there wouldn't be a psychoanalysis. Um, what was the second one before you asked about? Oh, yeah, yeah. And you were trying to say that my, my account tries to say something about the what, whereas Heidegger's does not. Right. Yeah, and that's partly because it's only, only very late that Heidegger really starts talking much about individual things at all. It's 1949 onward. It's sort of been there before, but that's when he really gets interested in it. Uh, before that, the being does seem kind of monolithic in Heidegger. How would you talk about the what? Um, seems to me there are three alternatives, not just two. One alternative is you can't say anything about things in themselves. The other is you can say everything about them. And the other is you can hint them or allude to them. This, this language does this too. You can say things without saying them. Uh, this, this is what a lot of illusion does in language. This is what metaphor does, I think. This is what, I think this is what aesthetics in general does. It says things without saying them. And I think this, this is how you get it, the thing itself, by alluding to it. Uh, and that's what the whole selection, whole section on allure and guerrilla metaphysics is about, trying to, trying to find an oblique way to get at things. And uh, I'm, I'm skeptical of any kind of theory that thinks you can give adequate knowledge of the qualities of the, of the thing, because then you're somehow implicitly saying that the thing is made up of a bundle of those. All you have to do is list the qualities, and then you've got it. And I don't think you're going to get it. You can, you're not going to get a thing just by listing. There's supposed to be something that puts them together in a certain way. Um, you know, in Husserl, for example... You have to know the, th the essence of the thing, the edos of the thing, through categorical intuition, not through, not through sensual intuition, but it's still a kind of knowledge that's adequate, of course. Uh, in all these forms of naturalism, um, uh, there is adequate knowledge. Uh, structural realism, which is getting hot now, and this is where Ray Gracier seems to be headed as well, uh, they think that, all right, the content of science may change over time, but its mathematical structure does not. And you can still know the mathematical structure, kind of like Nasu says. And so still there's an adequate kind of knowledge there. I don't, I don't see... I think you have to avoid that. The alternative is going to be somewhere... The alternative is not going to be that you can't say anything about the things because then it's, it's worthless. You're left in a real bind. The alternative is going to be that you have to say things about things without saying them. That's the best I can say in, in a short answer. And the third one was about isn't there always going to be a privilege in the sense that it's always going to be human knowledge that knows the other relations? I suppose insofar as we're humans, yes, we can't break out of that, but I don't think that gives an ontological privilege to the relations. If, if, how, do we, how do we know that there are relations between other things? Well, if there aren't, then we're left with monism, and I've tried to say that this is, this is untenable. I guess, I guess the, uh, someone could be a strict solipsist, and I haven't really answered that objection in this paper. I'm going to be working on that this summer. Uh, but as long as you know that the world's not just a lump, you're going to have individual parts, and as long as they're individual parts, there's no reason why they should be relating only through our, to the meaning of us. They should be able to, to relate with us. I don't see why the, the fact that human knowledge is what knows the, these relations gives it a privilege. It may mean that our, that our awareness of the content of those relations is always going to be colored by our access to it, but it doesn't mean that the relations themselves are going to be mediated by us. Some would. What do you think? Okay. I mean, how many people have 
Yeah, okay, these days not too many, but um, um, how strong is the sense in those philosophies of objects outside of our awareness? For example, you know, Hume seems very agnostic about this question, but for Humeans, all the relations are relations in human experience. Even if they're not coming right out and saying that we're Barclians and that there's nothing outside of us, it's, it's still the, the human experience is where all the relations occur. There's no philosophical role played by the other ones. I would say for Kantians also, because uh, even if there are things in themselves, what is said in Kant about the relation between the things in themselves? I don't remember that, because relation is a category, a human category, right? So what, in all these philosophies which are of human or Kantian inspiration, I would say that it doesn't really make a difference if they grant that there may be something outside of And not just the what? Not just something that we project upon things. I, th- I think our understanding of the nature of that relation will be projected to some extent, but that doesn't mean that the relation itself is projected. Otherwise, you have to have monism. I mean, what I take to be the genuine import, though, of the third part of your question is not a question about how we know that there are relations between other things, the question about how we can speak about non-relation. And I know that you've answered this question probably many times before, particularly in debates with Mayasu, but... I haven't heard it yet. So, I mean, how do you respond uh, to what Macy calls the correlational circle? That when you say, for example, that there are objects that are autonomous from relations, that withdraw from relations, that very proposition is a relation yep. to that object. And so it's just a very simple point, but um, when we think that an object is unrelated, that thought is itself a relation. So how can we ever posit the non-relational status of objects, insofar as we're caught by what Mayasu then calls the correlational circle. And I guess by what sort of logical or argumentative procedure do you propose to break with that objection? Right, this, in analytic philosophy, this is called Stove's Gem, which David Stove in Australia called the worst argument ever made. Ray Brassi were here, he could explain it better than I can, but he, what he says is that it's, it begins with a tautology, that knowing things is a condition of knowing them, and proceeds to a non-tautology, which says that therefore you cannot establish that anything exists outside the knowing. So I would say that you, you can simply suggest that something exists outside the knowing, and yes, my suggesting is something I know, because I can hear myself suggesting it, but that does not imply that you're unable to suggest or to point beyond, beyond our experience. But the, it, but the question I'm asking, though, is about a particular proposition of that objects are non-relational, not just about human knowledge per se. It works the same way, I think. I can say objects are non-relational, and my saying that is obviously my saying it, and so it's a human proposition. It's a relation. Yes, but that doesn't mean that that relation exhausts the meaning of the statements. The meaning of the statement points beyond the way in which it's formulated. Um, In analytic philosophy, you also have Kripke's theory of reference where you can say, uh, the man there holding a camera, I can point at this man, and you can see him, and it's independent of any of, any of the, the qualities that I gave in order to designate him. My pointing, if I describe him as the man in the blue shirt holding the camera, you can still point at him beyond any of those qualities. It's not nonsensical to say that you can point at a thing without reducing it to the features by which the pointing occurs. So I, I'm not, I don't find the, the correlation circle compelling. And that's an interesting thing about Mayasu that many people miss, that I missed the first time I read the book, that he's actually a correlationist. I mean, he's, not, he, he's radicalizing correlationism. But he actually thinks it's a very powerful argument. Uh, and I gave maybe my best objection to this in the final chapter of Friends of Networks, just released, 
which no one's seen because it wasn't in the version I circulated previously, but I've got, I've got about 25 pages on that there. Um, I would just say that the, you, you can, just because you're pointing at something does not mean that your act of pointing is exhausted by what's accessible about the pointing. You don't look satisfied. No, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I, I certainly agree that the thing you're pointing at is exhausted by the pointing. Okay. It's a question about being able to say something about what is not exhausted by the pointing. And, and then that itself reestablishing a relation to. I mean, so this sounds that's like a, the, it's how you get behind that. You know, It's not just that you want to say there's something behind what I'm, uh, what I'm saying about it, but you're making an argument about the particular constitution about that thing which is behind what I'm saying about it. And so when the, you do that, you say something about it. So this is Peter's that and his wetness question again, right? How can yeah. you say something about the right. wetness of things? That's right. well, I mean, another way we would ask this is to say, Graham, like, apart from an appeal to your experience, mm -hmm. your personal experience, how do you know that the world is not alone? Like, how do you know that reality is not alone without appealing to your own experience and the discretionary status of objects? Like, because you make this claim, you say monism is wrong, it's untenable, the world is not alone. But how do you know that without appealing to your own relation to the world? I think you have to. I, I, we can't proceed as though we're not alive, right? We can't proceed sure. purely rationally. We all know that there, there seem to be a multitude of entities doing things. Uh, and I, I think monism is incompatible with that. I think that this, this idea that we're going to abstract from our own lives and, and construct, a, construct a purely deductive system from principles without any reference to that is probably impossible. But even in your very answer, you say, we all know that the world is a multitude of entities. That seems like a philosophical problem. Like that's the problem. We all know that there's a multiple multitude of entities. How do we explain this phenomenon by which we know that the world is a multitude of entities? No, 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 multitude of appearances. I'm not saying entities at first. It could be true in the first step that there's a monistic lump. Right. But you say that there are entities. You say like uh, something like uh, we know that the world is in these discrete entities. Um, I don't know exactly how you said it, but I, and I'm, and what I'm asking is how do you know that? Or you say, we know, it's an idealist position to say the world is exhausted by what is given. And you say, we know that the world is not exhausted by what is given, that there is something beyond that. How do you know that? I mean, how do you know that? How do you know the world is not exhausted by what is given, which is the flip side of how do you know the world is not alone? Like, how do you explain, without an appeal to your experience of this discretionary, these discrete phenomena, that the world uh, has... Real objects. Yeah, that are discrete ones. Yes, the way I got to the realist position was through Heidegger's tool analysis. Right. That uh, you find that the, the way in which any item of equipment is given is not adequate because it, it ruptures, it breaks down, it shocks you. Which does not mean that things are resistant. Resistance is the way we know the things. Resist, uh, things are not just resistance. Uh, and once you have that position, you know there's some kind of reality, at least I do. And if you try to think that reality is a monolithic lump, then you have problems. You have, you have problems explaining why a multitude should come out of that lump. But I'm not making an appeal to... When I say we know the world is made of discrete entities, I mean we know the world is made of discrete appearances. And that, I, can't, I can't give that to you anyway than by just opening your eyes and looking. That's, that's just something we all experience. If the world is not experienced as a monolithic lump, it could still be one at that first stage. The reason it isn't for me is because you get to realism through the tool analysis and... Once you get that real world, I don't see how you can get from a monolithic real to being broken into fragments just by the work of a human subject.
terms of the question of judgment. That is to say, and this is, and, and this is exactly what Kant is doing. I mean, it's arguably in the first critique, the important thing is that he reposes the question of the form of the object has to do with the form of judgment. Okay. Uh, and that is, that doesn't entail any ontological commitment. It's an epistemological claim. And what it does is, to take a simple example, that I say, you know, this is a table, that's a form of judgment. You know, that's not incompatible with then subsequent scientific discoveries that the table actually consists of atoms and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, so all Kant is saying is he's talking about, uh, and that's how he overcomes the rationalist empiricism. Now he relies on Kant and empiricism, but he's neither rationalist nor empiricist because he changes the topic to be a question of judgment and the form of judgment. Mm -hmm. So the, the form of objects you derive, though, it seems to be, and again, I'm not very clear, it seems to be like when you say this is a table, mm -hmm. you say, and that's just not a form of judgment, one way of speaking about the table, and we can also speak about it in other ways, but actually there's a sort of ADOS of the table, like, I mean, the, the way you perceive it, that's also the way it is infinitely withdrawn, or is it totally different? It might be different. This table that we're encountering is the result of an interaction between two electoral objects, me, and an indirect interaction with the real table. It might not be similar to this at all. So calling it, a t calling it a table that exists in withdrawn form is kind of true to put in quotation marks. It's a pre-table, or it's, it's whatever this is, whatever, whatever comes before this. But there's something that makes it different from, say, I look at this chair, yeah. and the infinitely withdrawn version of this chair, yeah. while it might not be similar to this chair, is going to be different from the infinitely withdrawn version of the table. Yeah. And that difference is derived, how is it derived, and how is it expressed before? Because it seems to be like the question of form from Kant, to say like, and this is actually already in Aristotle, like, it, it's meaningless to talk about the form of objects. I mean, like, the forms of mind, and that, that Kant changed that to forms of judgment. Yeah. So, and you seem to take the forms of judgment and place them not in the material world, because, like, you don't want to describe the table in according to, say, scientific realism. So, you don't place the form in the mind or in the world, but in this sort of infinitely withdrawn realm. And what is the shape of the form in this realm? Because it has to have a form to be distinct mm -hmm. from the chair. Mm -hmm. The X version of the table, let's call mm -hmm. it that, the withdrawn version of the table, mm -hmm. has to have a form that distinguishes from the X version of the table, oh, of the chair. Mm -hmm. uh, and that form is not a material form. It's not a form of judgment, not a form of mind. So, what does it consist of? Is, is it an immaterial form, and like how is it? It's a substantial form in the scholastic sense, with suitable improvements made. Uh, uh, I, how are forms of judgment coming into my position? That's no, 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 I'm just, they, they're not coming in, and that's my yeah. question. That like also the way we counter the history of philosophy now yeah. with rationalist empiricism as sort of the alternatives, and one of the ways that Kant is trying to overcome that divide and show why it's misguided is precisely via the question of judgment in in the first critique. And that, saying that like, our speaking of the object is indissociable from the question of judgment, is a purely epistemological claim. It's not a claim about ontologically uh, my cognition of the world determines how the world is. It's just that to understand what you're saying when you're talking about objects, you have to understand something about what judgment is. And uh, it just, I, uh, so, 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 it's, so it's the status of the form. If you don't want to know 
located in the mind, you don't want to locate in the matter, but it's located somehow in the object itself. I guess, but on the phenomenal level, I don't see that there's that much difference between what I'm saying and what Kant's saying, because you know, Kant's not saying you walk along and see a chaos and judge it to be a table, right? It's, it's yeah. transcendental, it's, it's given that way. Uh, and the same for me, too. It's, yeah. given, it's given in a certain way. The difference is that I'm saying that the, the realm of the phenomena, of the things themselves, is already broken up into parts, and you're asking how are those, what's the nature of those things? Yeah. Uh, I'm saying that they're, they're substantial forms, they're, they're things are substances, they're not, they're not eternal like a many miles of substance, they're also not final. I also think there's this infinite regress of levels. And so you don't just have a substance level and then a phenomenal level. There's all these different layers. Because I, I myself might be part of another collective which has a reality over and above me that I don't have any access to. So it's not like, not like the human is the highest stage either and it's not like the atoms are the smallest stage. There's this chain of layers. Uh, and so it's, it, there's also not a two-world ontology here. There's an, an infinite number of layers. But in each case, what you have is you have a real thing that is not fully accessible in the next layer of which it is a part. So you, you have these parts coming together, pieces coming together, forming a new higher object, but those pieces are not fully exhausted by that higher object or accessible to it. And you want, you want to know what the, what the nature of the forms is. What, anything that has a form, anything that's real, that's an object that has a form, is unified, but it also has a plurality of traits. It also must have pieces that it draws upon to create that unified form. Uh, it must have, you could call them essential features, I guess they, I call them eidetic features for a different reason, uh, that other things can encounter, because they can never encounter the unity of the thing. The, unit, the thing is absolutely unified, just like in Leibniz. And so you can encounter that, but the thing does have multiple traits, and you can encounter the traits of it, and indirectly get at the things that way, too. I want, I want to point to one other historical forerunner of this, which is Francisco Suarez. I got into reading Suarez over last winter break, and uh, even though he's adamantly opposed to occasionalism, he doesn't think God is intervening in any cases but miracles. What's interesting about Suarez is he thinks the forms of things, unlike for Aquinas, cannot be moved from place to place. The form is, is not form stamped in matter, it's just a pure form, and it cannot be translated anywhere else, which means that access to the form has to always be done indirectly, and he says it's done through accidents. He says all causation is by means of accidents, which isn't quite occasionalism, because it's not God coming in and doing everything, but it's at least all causation is still indirect in a different way, even though it's not God doing it. I think this is about the closest I've ever seen to the model of causation I would want to give, which is that individual things are interacting locally but not directly. They're interacting through their, their own qualities somehow. But this indirect causation can change the form itself. The unified form that's infinitely withdrawn. Right, and that's why you can't touch it directly. You have to touch it through some of its qualities, which is somehow... But through this indirect relation, it can change itself. So then it's, it's touched somehow. You, you can relate to things in a way that destroys them, sure. Okay, yeah. so in what sense? Then it's not infinitely withdrawn from all relation, because even this indirect effect can destroy it, change it. But if the form is not final, if it's not eternal, yeah. then there's actually a relational dynamic hitting the core of the thing itself, because even if you say this context is indirect, since it has direct effects on the form itself, then it's not withdrawn from relationality. If it were completely withdrawn, then nothing could ever affect anything else, and I don't believe that. But I think it's all indirect. I would also say things are relational in the sense that they're made up of relations. They're constitutive relations, even if they're not exhausted by their outward relations with other things. But remember, certain certain relations among the pieces of a thing don't affect it, right? There's a certain what, what Delanda calls redundant causality, and some analytic philosophers call it that as well. So I can replace fifty of my blood cells with someone else's blood, and it doesn't really change who I am. 
only within certain limits. Within certain limits, those changes can be made in the pieces of a thing and not change what it is. There's a, there's a certain emergence that is immune to changes in the parts. But yeah, I would not. I would not say there's no interaction possible at all. That'd be a crazy theory. What are you left with then? As far as the first point you made, I, I don't think I take the ontological difference out. I think the ontological difference is everywhere in my reading. It becomes a difference between reality and relation. Being a being becomes a difference between reality and relation. So that uh, ontic, I don't, I don't read ontological versus ontic as the difference between one and many, as Heidegger sometimes does. That being is one and then ontic is individual beings. I think, that's, I think he's misreading his own concept there. I think ontic means present at hand, really in its strongest form in Heidegger. And, and things are present at hand, in my reading of Heidegger, which is unorthodox, when they're in relation to something else. Uh, when they're... I guess, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, I guess the reason I brought that up is because I think that 
Okay. I'll go on to the other question then. Sure. The the uh, the other one about are the causes of things also real entities. Well, insofar as I think that the cause of an entity is always other entities, just as Whitehead does, the ontological principle. Yes, I would say the causes of Cincinnati are all other individual entities. And in fact, I would allow for exactly two kinds of objects: the real and the intentional. And there's there's a big difference between these. One of these is the real objects withdraw. They don't. They're like tools in Heidegger's sense. They they can't be. They don't ever manifest themselves. Whereas Against what, how some people read Husserl, Husserl's intentional objects are not like that at all. People think of, sometimes people say that Husserl's intentional objects withdraw, but they don't. Uh, a tree or a mailbox where Husserl is always already there, it's there because I'm intending it. It's part of my experience. It's just that it's encrusted, it's layered over with all these other accidental effects that have to be subtracted away through eidetic variations so you get at the Eidos of the thing. But the Eidos is there. It's simply, you're distracted from it by all this other noise. It's not really an essential part of the things. And so that's a difference. The other difference is, you close your eyes and go to sleep. If everybody closes their eyes and go to sleep. Cincinnati will maybe may sorry Cincinnati may not exist. I don't know. It, to identify criteria for what makes the difference between a real object and an intentional one, we also may think that there are things that are real objects that aren't. I'm not saying that anything we think of as an object it's an intentional object. Yeah, uh, Popeye and things like this. At what point do those cease becoming intentional and become actually real? Um, there may be a point at which that happens sociologically where. If enough people agree and believe in something, then it, has, it takes on real causal force. And I, I haven't really thought about that that much. How would one transform into the other? But I would say there are two kinds, but many different levels. I don't see anything more problematic with calling Cincinnati an object than saying that individual people in Cincinnati are objects. And of course, this is my problem with Leibniz. You know, Leibniz is a strong distinction between substance and aggregate. Things that are, substances must be real by nature. So he gives these funny examples like, a pair of diamonds glued together cannot be a substance. The Dutch East India Company cannot be a substance. A circle of men holding hands cannot be a substance. I don't see why not in those cases. Because diamond is an especially funny example because what's so natural about a diamond, the amount of work that has to go into, into fabricating one of these things out of its original form, it's clearly, there's not, not something natural about a single diamond. You're cutting it and then polishing it in many different ways. Um, so I would say there's all these different layers of object sizes. And actually, what, what I don't like about materialism is Materialism seems to be linked often with the debunking project. You know, all these naive fools believe in angels and souls and things, and we're going to get rid of that by saying that no, it's all is made of physical matter or it doesn't exist. Why? We don't really know what's out there. We don't know if there are angels out there or, or convergent forces or astrological influences. We, we can choose not to believe in those things. We, why start off your philosophy by trying to disqualify certain kinds of entities from existing by building that into the very foundation of your ontology? I don't, I don't see the grounds for that. I think you have to leave it wider so that you could account for anything that might exist and then you can make decisions later on as to which ones you do or do not believe exist but why start off by saying it has to be physical stuff and that's what it always seems to come down to it has to be physical stuff and people have even admitted this to me the reason they, they want materialism is it's the only way to preserve the critical project of debunking ideologies I don't see why that's so important Yeah, I don't appeal to that either. I'm just saying you have to start off ontologically with a wider definition. An object is anything that's unified, that has a plurality of qualities, that withdraws and other things. That's a real object. Uh, I don't see why you have to say that it's made of one of the chemical elements or why it's made of quarks and electrons um, or that it's made of some hard physical thing that you can push. Ultimately, I think it's very philosophically naive, this idea that you have a physical thing that resists pushing. Um, what, what, 
because it's wrong in both directions. It's wrong not only about angels and souls, it's also wrong about larger entities. Our physical, like Cincinnati is not physical in that sense. It has a physical aspect to it, but it's also more than a physical aspect, isn't it? Uh, you, can't, you can't push Cincinnati around, even if you picked up the whole city and moved it 10 feet. Um, so I, don't, I have no interest at all in preserving the critical side of it, the debunking side of it. I mean, in, um, in the Lucretian rationalism, and, you know, Epicurus, Lucretius, I mean, he gives a, a reason for his rationalism and his materialism that you might be more open to. It's basically a sort of ethical reason that it makes us happy um, to know through reason and not to be beholden to things which we cannot explain. I mean, that's a sort of a rationalist reason why we should be materialists or also why we should be rationalists. Okay, but, but in, yeah. the fundamentalists I know in Cairo also say it makes them happy to know that the law of sure. and everything. I'm not, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying it's an irrefutable argument. It's just a, it's an argument that is given by certain rationalist you know, materialists. Yeah. And so in Lucretius, I mean, okay, we start with atoms and void, but then he tries to offer an explanation of how we get not necessarily higher forms of organization, but a multiplicity of forms of organization, which one could call you know, differential objects, differential forms, etc. And what he says, these are composed of you know, what he calls atoms, which we can take as just a generic materialist name for components. That doesn't mean necessarily that one, uh, that, that sort of materialism reduces all other objects to those atoms or denies their, the reality, let's say, of mid-sized objects. I mean, Lucretius wants to give an account of that reality, and he wants to give an account of the constitution of those objects, which is sort of accessible to reason. Um, so I wonder if uh, if there's more compatibility in an account like that between you know materialism and realism. Insofar as I mean I don't know in my reading of Lucretius anyway I don't really see him as an eliminative materialist or a reductionist materialist, but someone who is trying to think the organization of forms through components, which you are also trying to do. So I wonder if there's some some room for negotiation there. If that's all materialism meant, then sure, I'd be, I'd be in favor of that. Organi- uh, showing how organization comes through components. Sure, but uh, there are ultimate components in the creatures. There are atoms, and they might have different sizes and shapes. But those are still the ultimate components, and I'm not sure why they should be. Why, why can't it go further down? Uh, as we see now in physics, it is going further and further down. And also, what is in Lucretius? In Lucretius, isn't there also an ultimate layer, which is that of human experience? Does he have much to say about social collectives and the building up of larger objects of which humans are a part Human I mean, humans themselves are composed of, you know, whatever Lucretius calls atoms. I mean, I don't take atoms to be limited to a particular scale level. I mean, I take it as a sort of uh, generic axiom to reject an infinite regress. And one might reject that also. But I don't see why, for example, you know, what Lucretius calls atoms couldn't also be called by contemporary physics strings, etc. Why it's not compatible with that sort of movement. Okay, they could be, but then the question is, what happens to the intermediate levels? What happens to geological facts and chemical facts and sociological facts? And most of the materialists I know don't, aren't as concerned about those. They sort of concede the existence of those, but they, they seem to give those almost an epistemological reality, that it makes sense in geology to not talk about smaller units, but they don't seem to always give it a strong ontological sense that there actually are geological facts that cannot be reduced. And I think there obviously are, because you can, you can change around some of the microparticles in, in geological faults without changing the faults. So obviously the San Andreas faults has a reality, I would say, over and above any of its constituent parts. And the same for any other science. Um, 
So unless you have all those intermediate layers, and I worry that you're headed towards a two-layer theory again, where on the one hand you've got the underlying substratum of what's really happening, which are the atoms, and the other layer you have the appearances, just these two worlds. When actually I think there's this multiplicity of layers, but all of which are made up of the difference between reality and appearance. Because there's reality making them up, and there's an appearance to which they give rise. I want to follow up on that too again. It's something I'm hearing sort of becoming clear to me for the first time hearing you speak today is it seems to me that your project really does broker a sort of radical skepticism. Uh, I mean, this with your commitment to the infinite regress, uh, with your critique of the materialist position based on this sort of principle of sufficient reason or ground, trying to explain things, and refusing to acknowledge philosophically a distinction based on knowledge between God or angels and uh, the historical constitution of the, the, the city of Cincinnati. Uh, so it does seem to have a radical skeptical position, uh, which, you know, as Mayasu develops, building on Richard Popkin's work, he says is connected to fideism, that skepticism leads to fideism, because, or an agnosticism at best, but oftentimes a fideism, where you say, okay, because I cannot know, I give up the project of determining how I know, then I, I have this fideism and I, this agnosticism that countenances all kinds of things. So there's an interesting sort of relation there. And I think that that's also connected, uh, your radical skepticism I think has to do maybe with Martin's question about judgment. And the fact that you're not, you're not asking this question about judgment, about philosophical judgment. And that's all precisely what the skeptic, the radical skeptic does away with as well. Um, because if you're not gonna give an epistemological account of the table or a physicalist account of the table based on like the four forces of physics, then you're not asking the question of judgment or the, what accounts for the table's discrete quality. It's just, it's not a question you ask. Which is like the, skeptic, the skeptical tendency always ends with, I, I don't know, I don't know, into an infinite regress that then abandons trying to give an account for the discrete quality. And according to Popkin, this is, this is the ground clearing for rationalism. This is what Descartes intervenes to stop by taking this principle of radical doubt and making it the ground of a new rationalism. Um, so I just want to see if you have any more thoughts on this. It's interesting. I hadn't heard it put that way. I would not call myself a skeptic. I would just say, and I wouldn't call myself a fideist. I would just say that you don't build those sorts of distinctions into the foundation of your ontology. You don't, you don't build a decision but about... You don't build an ontology. You build an epistemology, but you don't want to do an epistemology. There's no epistemology in your, in your system. I wouldn't say skeptical. that doesn't necessarily mean that I don't want to do it. It just means that I don't think, I don't, I don't think that you can do it in terms of having some privileged knowledge of a thing in terms of, of qualities. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm skeptical of that. I, think that. I don't think that means there's no difference at all between belief in the tooth fairy and belief in geological facts. But the account, but, what would be the account of that difference? What would be the account of that difference? And, and I'm saying, I mean, would it be epistemological? I would think it would be epistemological, but you might say it's ontological. And if it is ontological, then what is that difference? Like, how do you account for that? Once you grant the infinite regrets, if you grant the infinite regress in play in every object in this room, and you don't want to give an epistemological account of, its, of discretionary entities, and you don't want to give a physicalist materialist account of it, then what is the account of it? I don't see what the infinite regress has to do with it, because the infinite regress just means you can't find an ultimate component. But then what holds it together as a table besides gravity? Or epistemology? Like, what makes it a discrete entity? And this is the question of judgment. How, and Deleuze asks this question via Kant. He says, Kant said, changes the question, what is an object, to how do I come to recognize an object as an object? Like what makes it an like what makes it a discrete entity? What makes it a discrete entity is that it has qualities that are table qualities. It's not a bundle of things put together. It's a, it's a unity 
from which those qualities emerge. It seems like you need a materialist or a physicalist account to account for that unity. Why? Why does it because have to be Because you don't want to have an epistemological account or, or a phenomenological account. If you don't want to have a phenomenological or an epistemological account and you don't want to have a physicalist materialist account, then it seems like... You have a metaphysical account. You have a metaphysical account. Yeah, materialist is wrong. Materialist presupposes that there's a certain nature that all... Of all the parts. It presupposes a ground. It presupposes the principle of sufficient reason. It presupposes a ground that then accounts for the constitution of that thing. Which are simply the pieces arranged in a certain way. The smaller entities arranged in a certain way. Right. To again, yes. sure, yeah. And I, I would put the materialist accounts on the same side as the epistemological accounts. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think materialist accounts are sufficiently metaphysical. I mean, one thing you know, one thing that I find really interesting about your position is that I mean, I take it that you know, Graham sort of is giving a phenomenological. But an object-oriented, as he calls it, phenomenological account. And what's interesting to me is then how that links up phenomenology to metaphysics. Right. I mean, how that forces, you know, a destitution of the critical project, which privileges a priori forms of human knowledge, you know, above other forms of relation. So, I mean, if we take humans to be objects in their relation in the same way as all others, how do we rethink mm-hmm. synthesis, you know, on right. those grounds? And so, I mean, what I take to be interesting about, you know, a tool being guerrilla metaphysics is that it Employs phenomenological tools in the service of metaphysics. I mean, the question would be though, in your table example, is that you have to show in a, a non trivial way how the table is also a table for the book and the chair. And, and it's very hard to see how, what that means exactly. And I can understand what it is, you know, if you can use that table as a table. Because we have table like properties for beings that relate to these objects like tables as tables. But abstractions and relations. Give us a you know, less trivial case. I mean, Nathan raised the issue of compatibility, and I can see how having an account of how snowflake forms is perfectly compatible with your insistence on the irreducible existence of a particular snowflake. But are there cases where they're incompatible, right? where the materials move to explain, that I'm saying, fundamental words, uh, as Mark was saying, the, the kind of judgment that relates to the evaluation of an entity fundamentally changes it in its very essence. Take, for example, the category of a natural slave in Aristotle, mm-hmm. or the category of sovereignty as it was understood in the 18th century, or something like that. that. What is it that remains of that thing, slave, as Aristotle understands it, which would meet, meet all your criteria as an object, I assume, once a ways of understanding freedom and human beings and slave trades and various other things have changed in such a way that makes that category literally, I would have thought at least, you know, evacuated of any of the things which made it a coherent category along our preceding lines. Or take sovereignty, which defines itself in, in the 18th century, you know, the, the sovereignty of the king in its absolution of any consistent relationship with the people, right? But mm-hmm. then, this is the point that was made again and again during the French Revolution, is that what happens, what the French Revolution exposed, forces the king to confront, is that the sovereignty of the king is in fact delegated by the people, and that if the people withdraw it, the king is nothing. The king is no longer a king. In other words, the form of judgment that says this is a king in 1791, is, is a different kind of judgment than it was a couple of years before that. Or finally, after Marx, the judgment that says this is the working class in its relation to a struggle with a bourgeoisie that exploits it and so on, means that that class is no longer the same thing. It, 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 at both epistemologically and ontologically, it becomes a different thing uh, than that which was understood as a kind of natural, working, laboring population that was written into the natural order. So are there cases in other words, short, short, that, in which the relation of knowing and the forms of judgment which give a critical, I would say, materialist explanatory purchase on a thing, mm-hmm. actually alter the thing itself. Like a slave, the 
me start, start with the first point you made, which is that I'd have to show that a table is not just a table for us, but a table in itself. This, we first had this argument when you read my vicarious causation piece, and you said that why should a, a shoe be a shoe for an ant? Uh, and the answer is it probably won't be. I mean, it's probably the case that a, you know, a shoe, for example, is probably only, only shoes for humans, can only be a shoe for humans. But that doesn't mean that the shoe is constituted qua shoe precisely through its relation to us. Right? In other words, uh, only humans are capable of seeing it as a shoe, but it would still have to be a shoe outside of the specific shoe uses to which it was put. I think that's possible to say that, that, in other words, even though only we are capable of seeing it as a shoe or seeing table as a table, that doesn't mean that it is constituted as such solely by the specific way in which we are using it at any given moment. Why not? Because we can only use it as a shoe because it is a shoe. You, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can engage in very slight variations with your relation to its shoeness. It's, we're using it as a shoe slightly differently depending on the angle at which it's out on our foot, depending on the, maybe we, we turn the, the flaps down or something. There are, different, there are different variations we can do on our wearing of the shoe that don't change its being a shoe. There are people that use plastic bags as shoes in parts of the world, right? Is it a shoe or a plastic bag? I mean, Why can't it be both? Another question, uh, can, can the way of knowing a thing change its reality? I think what happens is when you know something, you're entering into a specific relation with it and you're creating a new object. I've, I've argued this before in front right? that, that a relation creates a new object. This is what happens. This is all, this is, any real relation will create an object. And so by relating to something differently, you're creating probably a new sort of hybrid object. Right? So if you're coming into a new relation to the slave or to the working class, it's not so much that those change, it's that you are creating a new sort of thing with that other entity by relating to it differently. Or maybe you're, maybe you're relating, maybe before you related to that person as a natural slave and now you're relating to them as a human, universal human subject that should be liberated. Okay, but are there natural slaves in the specific concept of the object? Oh, I see, I see what you mean. How would you debunk that category, for example? You could say that was merely an intentional object, there's no real, cool, there's nothing resembling the world. Yes, you can still do that. So there is that potent, critical potential still remaining in the theory, yeah. What's left of the... Once I realize that the category of natural slave is the category of a certain group worldview that, you know, that has material reasons and justifications based on, let's say, power of mode production, etc. Once I've understood that and debunked it, is there anything left? Of the intentional object, no, not unless people still believe in it. Or you can look at it as a past thing that people used to believe in, as a global belief. Um, right, just because somebody believes in something doesn't mean that it's real. It means that it's an intentional object, yeah. But what makes that intentional, the intentional object of the natural slave different from the shoe? Like, philosophically speaking, what if, like, a thousand years from now, like, sho they, they wore shoes and thousand years is ridiculous, we don't have shoes anymore. Like, what, what, I mean, what in your system makes that distinction? Because isn't the shoe just an intentional object and it's shoeness? Okay, it may be hard to determine the difference between those two individual cases, but what would make the shoe real and the natural slave not, if that's the case, is that the shoe had some sort of shoeness that the human was interacting with in different ways that maybe other entities couldn't wear shoes, all right, fine, but still there had to be some independence, some autonomy of that shoe from any of the individual uses of it, whereas in the case of the natural slave, it wouldn't be. It would be constituted purely in the act of thinking about it. And once you stop yeah. relating to it as a natural slave, it ceases to be as a natural slave. Right. As long as you relate something as a shoe, it continues to be a shoe. Even if all of us in the world stopped wearing shoes right now, I would say the shoe would still exist as a real object. Right. This would be my, my claim. Is that the shoe is physical? 
It's a substantial form. It's not material. Not a, it's not an ADOS because it's not permanent. It's individual. There are individual shoes in each case. So I don't, I'm, not, I'm not a platonist. I don't believe there are eternal essences that things are copying. I think each individual thing has its own objecthoods. But the individual thing is not physical, ultimately. Right. That's right. I mean, can you make a distinction between a shoe and it's a form. slave through formal cause? I mean, is that yeah. the category that you Yeah, the shoe would have a formal cause, and you, you'd say the natural slave doesn't. The natural slave is an illusory formal cause. Yeah, but I can also take it for the round table. Yeah, that's right for the round table.